Dear Father in heaven, as we anticipate the blessing of reading thy word, of, of, of thinking about it, dear Father, of meditating on it, we need to first turn to thee, to thank thee, to praise thee, and to ask for thy presence here, to speak to us. Dear Father, this is an honor and a privilege to come together, each one to be here, gathered around thy word, each one to submit to it, to hear what we believe are words of life, are words that we need, that des desperately are needed in a world that uh, is continually trying to knock us off balance and, and off the solid rock and away from the assurance of salvation in Christ Jesus. Dear Father, we need to hear this word, we need to be reminded, and we need to do it, dear Father. Give us the grace to not only be hearers of these things, dear Father, but to be doers of them, to, to practice them, so that as we speak the word, when the time is right, the witness would be clear and others would be changed, others would be rescued from a life apart from thee and, and an eternity away from thee. Dear Father, we thank thee this morning. We pray for those that couldn't be here and we're mindful of those that are sick and in need of thy healing touch. We pray for them too and we pray that they would be also blessed by the hearing of thy word this day through technology and whatever other means thou wouldst use. Dear Father, we thank thee for these things. We ask a blessing now in Jesus' name on this word. Amen. I'd like to <clears throat> turn with the Lord's help to the second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 2. Second Corinthians, chapter 2. Second Corinthians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? And I wrote this same unto you, lest, when I came, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. So that contrarywise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes, forgave I it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus my brother, but taking leave of them, 
I went from thence into Macedonia. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. I've read the entire chapter. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's kneel for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for this opportunity we have this morning to be here in thy house to worship thee to look into thy word, to make sense of a confusing world, to see ourselves reflected in it, and most importantly, to see thee contained in its pages. Heavenly Father, we ask a blessing on the brother as he would expound this word unto us, that words would be given to him, that he'd be able to not only explain this passage, but help us to take it into our own lives, that we would behave and pattern ourselves after the Apostle Paul as he wrote these words, and then as he said, as he follows also Christ. So ultimately, Heavenly Father, we wish to be conformed to the image of thy Son. We want to be more like him, because what this broken world needs is to see Jesus. Heavenly Father, we ask for thy blessing on those that could not gather with us this morning. We know there are many that are sick and some that are traveling. We're especially mindful, mindful of Sister Bev. We ask that thou would be with her and watch over her, provide for her and her health concerns as well, Heavenly Father, and be with her. We ask also a special blessing on those who are struggling uh, outside of our circles here, those that have experienced the loss of uh, houses and homes. We're reminded uh, this morning, again, of those that have suffered loss because of the hurricanes uh, that were in the news recently those that are suffering in war-torn Ukraine as well, Heavenly Father. I want to pray especially for our brethren over there that thy spirit would be with them, that thou wouldst watch over them and keep them according to thy will, and that they would be lights for thee in a very dark place right now. Dear Lord, be with us now throughout this day as we would consecrate it unto thee. We ask for thy presence now to be with us here this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you remember, it's been a couple months maybe um, ago, I preached out of the first uh, a chapter um, in this letter to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians. And I've come back now to the second chapter and it's a fascinating letter and in so many ways, in, in a very personal way. I think this letter may be more than any of the other letters, certainly more than letters to the other churches, Ephesians, Galatians, there's some in Galatians, but this letter, even more than 1 Corinthians, is a personal look into the life of Paul. 
Like he gives some details here that he doesn't reveal anywhere else, some intimate things. And it's really in the context of him dealing with a group of immature believers, uh, frankly, believers that are giving him a hard time. If you read, you keep going through here and, and read the final three chapters, he really uh, lays it out, as it were. Um, but it's so interesting to see how he engages with this group of, of immature believers and how much he gives of himself, how much he uh, opens up his heart to them, how much he lays that first chapter. I don't know if you remember uh, a couple months ago, the first chapter, the theme seems to be comfort. And he starts from that, that place in that position as he is really going after the heart of these believers. These believers that there in Corinth, the church which he founded, he started, he, he preached the gospel, uh, came there where it was not preached before. A church was started there. And then, for whatever reason, maybe the, 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 the dynamics in the church there, they started to give him a hard time about his apostleship, just his credentials, who he was. He wasn't, maybe there were some other people that came in. We get that impression from the end of this letter. Some flashy people, some people that had a, a real gifts for speaking and, and a highly polished, charismatic people. And in the eyes of the Corinthian believers, Paul didn't compare well to them. He, he, uh, he, some of the things he says in this this, uh, this letter about he was, his speech was not well polished, etc. So this letter is a, a fascinating glimpse into Paul's heart and how he goes about to win back believers that are, are giving him a hard time. One of the first things I noticed in this chapter and, uh, it had, had me thinking recently I took some training at work and uh, it was more of the personality type where you kind of find out about yourself and how you react to situations and what your own weaknesses are and it turns out surprise surprise I'm not surprised I'm very conflict averse I do not like conflict when there's a conflict my natural tendency is to back away and just let someone else deal with it hope it blows over change the subject I don't think there are too many people that like conflict, but some people seem to be better at going directly at it. And one of the things I see here in this chapter is Paul's approach to conflict, which I need to learn from. You know, if we really love other people and we really love the truth, we're not going to run from conflict. We're not going to pretend it doesn't exist. I have to keep reminding myself. Well, we may even have to say things that are hard to be heard. Hard, we know that the other party is going to receive in a way that not going to go down well. It's going to create something. But as we approach it, I think there is some godly wisdom that can be applied. The, the beginning of this this chapter here, he was referring to something at the end of the previous chapter where he said, you know, I didn't come to see you yet. Um, he said, um, I, didn't, um, I didn't come to visit you a second time uh, for some particular reasons he gave at the end of the, the first chapter. 
And then he continues on to give them more of the reasons why he hadn't come to see them yet. He had said he would, and yet plans changed. And some of those in Corinth accused him of, oh, changing his mind and, and is saying yes and no at the same time. And Paul said, no, no, no. He said, our heart towards you is yes. It's always yes. And he said, part of the reason I haven't come to you again is because I didn't want to come to you in heaviness. I didn't want another painful visit. Not because Paul wanted to avoid conflict, because he was afraid of, 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 of um harsh or awkward situations it was for their own good he says he wrote them a letter actually and gave them some time and maybe that's one way to deal with conflict or with difficult situations is to give people space to, to let them know this is what I believe and this is the stand I'm, I'm making and here you consider this you take some time not get right up in their face and try to convince them and, 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 and win them over with words or kind of speak them down, pound them down with words. He wrote them a letter, a, a, a harsh letter, a letter that he says he wrote with much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears in verse 4. It was, a, it was difficult to write that letter, but he thought that was a more effective way to resolve this conflict. And when he heard back the report from Titus, um, if you read chapter 7, you can put chapter 2 and chapter 7 together, you get to see that it had been effective. The other thing I see about Paul's approach to conflict was he really took the pains to show them he was on their side, that this was all for their sake because he loved them. You know, he, he says, the joy, my joy is the joy of you. We are in the same, we are on the same side here. My joy is the joy of you all. You've affected me deeply. We are connected here. I can't just, see, the, the, the temptation with being conflict averse is that to, to, to not acknowledge that we really do have a relationship or that we have a connection that's important to, to uh, work through and for. You know, the tendency is just to wipe my hands of it and I'm going to keep you at a distance and... We won't talk about what's difficult or what's challenging. And Paul doesn't do that. He says, no, no, you affected me deeply. I, um, I'm pouring out my, my heart to you. I'm deeply concerned about you. And I think the best for you. I have the confidence in you that, that my joy is the joy of you, you all. And so he'd given them some space. He'd, he told them what he, what he thought was wrong with them, where they needed to correct gave them some space, and yet at the same time showed them, this is my heart towards you. So this is part of my takeaway from learning from Paul. You know, I, I see so often parallels between myself and the Corinthians, the immature believers. I don't think I'm any better than them. But at the same time, I see, as, as the brother prayed in the prayer, I see the example of Paul. And that's what I want to be more of. I want to engage that way more with other people. So as the Lord helps, as the Lord conforms me more to the image of Christ, I'm going to learn to deal with conflict better. To say the truth at the right time, the right way, with my goal being the winning of the other person, of that relationship. There's a little aside here. I don't want to um, get too far off the beaten track here, but this is worth noting. And it was kind of triggered to me. Um, now it's been a number of years ago. Brother Allen had a Bible study and talked about the sequence of letters. 
In, in verses 3 and 4 here, when he's referring to, and I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you, you would probably naturally assume, assume that's the first letter to the Corinthians. And people go from that assumption onto, okay, well, what's being talked about here, about this, this one, this man that was um, punished, is referring to the, the, the incestuous person in 1 Corinthians 5, and that he was being restored. I think if you do a careful reading through these two letters, you, um, you can see that that's not the case. That's actually a false assumption, or, or um, it's not a well-grounded, well-founded assumption. First of all, this letter that he's referring to here in verse 3 and 4, if you read chapter 7, he talks about Titus, the coming, nevertheless, God that comforted comforteth those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. So Paul's talking about the receipt of this letter in verse 3 and 4. And he's saying, Titus came back to me and he told me um, that that severe letter, it had an effect on you. And, and it, um, um, it had a, a positive effect. So this letter, this letter referred to in verse 3 and 4, it was delivered by Titus. Titus isn't mentioned in 1 Corinthians. It's Timothy is the one that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians as the, as the go-between. The other thing is that the, the, the nature of, of this, uh, what he's talking about, this man here in, in chapter 2 and, and chapter 7, it doesn't really fit 1 Corinthians 5. It, it talks about in chapter 7, Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. So that, that to me does not describe the situation or the sin in 1 Corinthians 5. Who had suffered the wrong in, in, in 1 Corinthians 5, the individual. So just the nature of it. Um, and if you read those passages, you put them together, they don't really fit the, the nature of the language. So be careful with those that would say, well, obviously the person in 1 Corinthians 5 is being referred to here, and, and it's, um, um, that's how we should treat such a one. That's just an aside. I don't uh, want to spend too much time on that. What I do want to focus on is really the, the, the theme and the thrust in this chapter, which is forgiveness. That after some conflict here, which likely had to do with Paul's apostleship, some, maybe some particular incident where someone said something to a representative of Paul or didn't receive him in a certain way, and it, it caused some pain to Paul, such that he said, he implied that I'm forgiving you now. He says, I've, I've, where does he say? But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Paul was acknowledging that this, the nature of this incident had something personal to do to him, with him, with how he was received. And um, Paul wants to show them now Okay, I'm, I'm going to address that topic. There, I don't think everyone in Corinth is fully receiving of my apostleship yet. He's going to have some strong and harsh words at the end of the, the letter. But I want to lay this foundation. I've forgiven. Whatever this incident is, I, I've forgiven it completely. If I, I forgive anything, as he says here, to whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. 
he's laying out clearly, no, no, no. The, the important thing here, after some consequence, some punishment of an individual for whatever they had done or said to him or to his representative, that individual had responded. He said, no, no, you need to forgive. And this is equally as important as the, the punishment uh, inflicted of many. You know, that punishment inflicted of many, it's really church discipline. It's not a popular topic. But I'm a kind of a mixed, mixed mind in some ways. That, you know, it doesn't seem to be something we do much of these days, which is good if there's no major problems. But could it be because we're conflict-averse? I don't know. I'll just leave that with you to, to think about and, and think, are we, do we care enough about the truth to, to speak to each other or just to have um, a certain kind of level of everything's okay and not to get too involved with each other and find out what's going on and care about each other. That's something that I, that's laid on my heart. Um, when I see the example here, when I see Paul and, and, uh, and the church there, there's, there's some real care and some difficult situations that they work through. But forgiveness is important. And the nature of it, the nature of, of, of that Paul extends, the forgiveness he extends, acknowledges also that Satan is at work here too. He says, lest Satan should get advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Unforgiveness, lack of forgiveness, that's a major. There is an adversary of our souls. We are each responsible. We can't turn around and blame him and say, Satan made me do it. Satan, uh, it's Satan's fault, but there is a spiritual being who is working opposed to us and is trying to keep in bondage you and me through various means, and, and lack of forgiveness is one of them. It's one of the means by which Satan can rob us. He's here, he says, take advantage of us. should get an advantage of us. Satan can, can rob us of things that are rightfully ours in Christ Jesus. The, the joy, the, the hope, the, the peace that are rightfully ours in Christ Jesus that belong to us in him, through unforgiveness, Satan can rob us of those things. They can be taken from us. We can let them go. But through forgiveness, we experience again that, that humbling of ourselves, that... that uh, that being conformed to Christ, I know this is Christ working in me as I forgive the other person, as I, as I actually strive and struggle in my heart to let go. Because it's a struggle. For, uh, forgiveness is a struggle. It's not a, um, um, a one-time, yeah, I, I forgive you anything. It's, it's all, no problem. You can say that, but you and I know that when we go back in the quiet of ourselves, our, our own, you know, our thoughts go back to the situation or to the wrong done to us or whatever and kind of j -j -j go in that same circuit. He's like, Lord, I'm still in bondage. Please help me. Please help me to love the way that you love, to forgive really the way, like Christ's forgiveness was the ultimate, the complete wiping of the slate. You, you see his behavior towards us, his, his demeanor, his care, his love for us. It's, it's, that's forgiveness. That's what forgiveness is. But you and I, while well, we struggle with that. 
But this is part of being, the, the being led in Christ, this triumph in Christ, triumphing in Christ. I have to believe that through Christ, as I follow him, just step by step, I'm going to become more like him. That's the faith that I, I have. I could look at myself and take an account and chalk up all the ways that I'm less than, that I'm falling short, and I could despair. But that despairing is not the voice of faith. It's not the heart of faith. It's the one that looks at themselves and says, yeah, who is sufficient for these things? As Paul says in verse 16, I'm not sufficient for these things. And yet, as I follow Christ, he is causing me to triumph. This is faith. This is walking by faith. It's not uh, um, having everything checked off. Everything's all right. Everything's all good. There's nothing, you know, I'm doing everything right. No, it's as I follow Christ, he conforms me to his image. He leads me in triumph. So forgiveness is a, is a key thing that I, I take from this chapter here. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. And this is, the way this is done is, is through forgiveness, through the acceptance. It was a difficult situation there. This, if you read 2 Thessalonians 3, talks about discipline and, 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 you know, one that is called a brother. If he's engaged in something that's wrong and sinful, he needs to be shunned by the body of Christ so that he could come to his senses. And it's a, not a pleasant thing. <laughs> something that I squirm and get kind of feeling awkward. But I see in God's wisdom, it's what he laid out in his word to as an effective means when maybe nothing else works. When people think, there is nothing wrong with me. I'm they're so deceived, they're so off the beaten track that uh, nothing else but this drastic action will work. But the whole goal of that is not to leave someone in that state. It's to, re it's re to restore them. It's to, 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 once there's repentance, to, 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 to as if it had never, that complete forgiveness in Christ he says, for if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ, in the presence of Christ, in the, in the awareness that, as Christ said, you know, if you don't forgive others, you will not be forgiven yourself. You will not experience that forgiveness from heaven if, if, it, it doesn't, if that does not pour through you. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Simple instruction. And this is what Paul's really expounding. This is everything in these, these letters. It's all based on Christ. It's all based on his example. Paul is indeed following Christ in triumphal procession. And that's where the, the, the end of this chapter ends up. Before we get there, though, there's a little detour there. He said, Verse 11, lest Satan should get advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Satan is, is doing his work here, too, in this unforgiveness. And then he has what seems to be a digression here, verse 12. He says, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened unto me of the Lord. There was an opportunity for the, to spread the gospel in Troas to preach. Did I take it? He said, I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus, my brother. The situation in Corinth was bothering him so much 
Satan was maybe doing his work too, was attacking Paul in a certain way through this whole situation in Corinth, that Paul couldn't preach the gospel there. You think, well, there is an adversary. There is one who is working against us. But, then verse 14 comes, the answer. Now thanks be to God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. As he found, if you read chapter 7, he finds Titus. He's reassured by Titus of the change, the, the godly repentance, the godly sorrow that happens in Corinth as a result of his severe letter. And he's reassured. And then read Acts Go through Acts and you see God allows Paul another opportunity. He comes back to Troas and he preaches the gospel there. That's the, the incident, if you remember the young man in the, in the window, the third story window that as Paul was preaching past midnight, this young man sinks down to sleep and falls asleep, falls out of the window, dies, and Paul restores him to life miraculously. Further evidence of, of God's working in his life. God always causeth us to triumph in Christ. That's the thing to remember in the sticky situation, in the conflict, in the whatever, as I struggle with forgiveness, as I struggle with, with how is this situation going to be resolved in Corinth, anywhere, God always causeth us to triumph in Christ. I'm not, I'm not seeing it right now. I'm, I'm not understanding how this works but it is actually happening now. And the picture he uses here causes us to triumph in Christ. You may not realize that word triumph, the English word triumph, is related to the original Greek word, which refers to a procession, a triumphal procession. So when you said triumph, or whatever the Greek equivalent was, to, a, to someone in the ancient times, they would think of a victor coming back to his home city, leading the procession, leading the procession of his... Warriors, those that had fought with him, leading the procession of those that had been captured, those that had been defeated. And this was for the city as he came. A great picture of rejoicing, actually. In the Roman times, they would, um, the priests or whatever, they'd have incense and, and they'd strew flower petals. There would be a smell. There would be a, a, a savor, as it says here, a fragrance. As these 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 glorious conquerors came back into the home city. And if you were part of that, depends who, whose side you were on, right? Made all the difference, whether it was a glorious thing, if it was a savor of life unto life, this is true victory, our, our city is, is, uh, is triumphing, it's, it's glorious, or if you were one of the captors being led to your death, certain death after the, at the end of this triumph, triumphal procession, it's a savor of death unto death. And that's what Paul is speaking about here at the end. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. The same smell, the same smell and savor, fragrance of that triumphal procession. To one person, as they smell it, and as they follow willingly Christ, it's life. It leads to life. To the other one, as they smell it, and they realize... This means the defeat of myself, of all that I want, of me, of who I am. I have to submit this to this, this man, this Galilean, that becomes a savor of death unto death. And this triumphal procession is actually happening now. I don't know if you catch the language there. 
for we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. God is smelling us. We smell like Christ to God. In them that are saved and in them that perish. So not only to God are we the savor, that smell, but we are to others too. So this triumphal procession is happening now. God always causes us to triumph in Christ. It's happening now. And it's happening through forgiveness, through dealing with conflict, through uh, the, the, the love and the care that we show to each other. This is the triumphal procession. And, and our choice is, are we going to be part of this as life unto life or death unto death? Is it going to smell like death to us, difficult, uh, horrible, painful, my, my life of sacrificing, uh, uh, crucifying my desires, or is that going to smell like victory and like, and like triumphing to me? What a picture. And God wants to make manifest, make known and open the savor, the smell of his knowledge by us in every place. This is God's desire for you and it's God's desire for me in every place where we go, whoever we deal with, that smell that comes off of us. First of all, a smell to God. Is it a sweet smell to him that honors our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And then it is a smell that other people perks them up and curious, wants to see what this is about, and then have to make a choice whether it's going to be life or death. My friend outside of Christ, is this message one of Death unto death for you? Is this church? Does it have a smell of death to you? Difficult? It, 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 it's awkward. It's uncomfortable. It doesn't fit me and what I want and my desires. Or does it smell like life? The only possibility for eternal life, for, for real life to you. I pray. Um, that's my desire. I, this morning, our... Um, like that last verse here, we are not speaking the word of God corruptly. We're not trying to, to, to twist these things to our own ends, that we're trying to pat ourselves on the back, that we're doing the right thing. And, and, and No, we are speaking these words as of sincerity and as of God, in God's stead, as ambassadors for Christ, as he says a couple chapters later. In the sight of God, speak we in Christ. The choice... For you this morning hour, my friend outside of Christ, is to decide whether you're going to follow now, willingly, or, or go your own way. Do your own thing. And one day, you will be part of a triumphal procession, regardless of whether you chose life or death here. But how you are part of that procession, whether you are a captor and, and, and defeated, or whether you are part of the glorious army of the, of the, the Lord Jesus, that decision, it's with you now. It's with you this morning what you smell, what you decide that this smells like. My brother and my sister, we have a choice this morning too. Whether, whether we see the triumphal procession, the triumphing in Christ, whether we see it through the difficult situations that we're going through, the conflict we may be having, we see Christ triumphing, whether we, we trust, even when we don't see, we trust that he is triumphing, 
or whether we despair, whether we get distracted, whether we get um, overwhelmed with much grief, grief as, as, as um, over much sorrow as this, this one was in danger. Perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with over much sorrow. That's a possibility too. We could just be, we could start to wallow. We could uh, become disabled and incapacitated and we're not triumphal warriors. May the Lord bless the word that was spoken this morning and, and cause us to realize uh, the choices that we have uh, in him this day. We've heard an excellent expositional sermon this morning on the letters of the Apostle Paul. And as the brother was meditating on this and sharing about the triumph, my mind went back to something that happened back in my teen years. I had a part-time job when I was in high school. I washed dishes at a local Italian restaurant and pizzeria. It wasn't a fun job, but it got me a little bit of extra money. And uh, I remember one young man that I worked with, and it was during the season of the World Cup. And after work that night, he was going to head down into Toronto for the parties that go on after World Cup. It was the final. And he said, I'm prepared. I've got both jerseys. Doesn't matter which side wins, I'm going to party. And I was thinking about that, you know, there's another World Cup coming up. A lot of money being spent on it. It's being hosted by Qatar, one of the oil nations. They've spent some estimated $200 billion on that event. Say it another way for you. $200,000 million. There's going to be some big parties that go on there. There's going to be a big triumph for the winning team. Don't know who it's going to be and not even going to try to predict it. You know, this triumphal procession that my brother mentioned, the incense going in front, to be welcomed as heroes by your home city. There were those that maybe weren't part of the battle, but could dress up like a soldier, and at least from a distance look like they were part of the winning team. But you only had to get a little closer to them and see if they pass the smell test. Was that incense on them, or did they just look the part? Did they have that special something that wasn't obvious from a distance? There are many that use the name of Christ. There are many that even use the name of Christian for political ends or for some kind of a personal advantage. It's a bit of a game. But one day the game will end. One day the triumph will be real. And those that stood with Christ through the thick of it will also rejoice with him and bask in, in, in the glory that's his that he shares with those who follow him. But in that day you won't be able to hedge your bets like my friend did. You won't be able to have the backup jersey in your car just in case things don't go the way you plan. It'll be too late. It will indeed be the savor of death unto death. 
But the good news is that right now, at this moment, is the time to pick the winning side. Because you see, unlike sporting events here, I guess unless they're fixed, the outcome is already determined. Christ already won at Calvary. The triumphal procession is already booked. But you have a choice today. You can decide whether he will be the savior of life unto life or death unto death. Choose wisely. Be part of that glorious day that will make every other celebration that this world has ever seen or will see, including every World Cup, seem like small potatoes compared to that event where the crowds from all the ages will see who indeed is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Choose wisely. May the Lord add to whatever was lacking what was said, and may he bless us and dismiss us with his blessing. Amen.